Good morning, listeners. It is time on a Sunday morning to say welcome to Stay in the Loop with Lucy. Uh, you're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM. Uh, this is a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people, people in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences, their choices and consequences, and regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from what these guests share, we can choose to apply the relevant aspects in our lives and in our community and develop programs that found a more sustainable, loving and heartfelt way to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and our mental health. This week's show on Stay in the Loop with Lucy is all about health. World Health Day was marked around the world with the World Health Organization highlighting depression as a great area of concern. More than 300 million people are now living with depression, an increase of more than 18%. And those statistics are only from 2005 to 2015. So bearing in mind, we're two years on from that. And um, there's been a huge number of events around the world that have contributed uh, both personally and globally. I'm sure that the uh, that the statistics will show something very different in a few years' time when they're retaken. So what is our view of health? From a population health perspective, health has been defined not simply as a state free of disease, but as the capacity of people to adapt to, respond to, control or control life's challenges and changes. And the World Health Organization defined health in its broader sense in 1946, a fair while ago, as a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being, not merely the absence of disease and infirmity. And that's uh, that's something that we will touch on quite a lot today, that it's not just the absence of disease and infirmity. But, you know, it's not the common view, is it? When chronic disease is the fastest growing cause of death in the world, then our choices and our capacity to adapt, respond to or control life's challenges seems to be more important than ever. So which profession has been tasked with dealing with our health, having the cures, the answers? The medical profession and the front line of that profession are the doctors. Now, when I was doing the show, I was really contemplating. I always, you know, consider all the guests I've had in previous shows, all the topics we've covered. And in so many of them, we talk about the burdens people feel. And, you know, one of the most obvious burdens um, and belief systems is the one that men feel about having to support their family. Now, if you consider that burden and the outcome of that burdens, which has been well documented in many areas, what must the burden feel like for doctors who are tasked with having to have all the answers to our health? How do they manage that? And who cares for the carers? With the rate of suicide amongst doctors twice that of the adult population, today's show put doctors' health squarely centre stage. So without further ado, let me introduce my guest today. We have Dr. Maxime Schranker and Dr. Clayton Spencer. Dr. Maxime Schranker is a rheumatologist working in Sydney, where she can be found in Miranda and Cogra. She also provides a regional rheumatology service in Nowra. And Maxine is a keen educator and sought-after presenter with the ability to make the complex accessible and fun, as you may find today. She presents at community events, professional events, and is a university lecturer in rheumatology. Um, she's also active in professional affairs, having served as the chair for the Quality and Safety Committee for the Australian Rheumatology Association. 
and been a member of the Professional Affairs Committee and has examined for the Australian College of Physicians. She's a passionate advocate for health and well-being, in particular for the medical profession. Um, I'll mention the blogs that she does a little bit later. So um, welcome, Maxine. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Lucy. Um, Clayton. My next guest is Dr. Clayton Spencer, the District Medical Director for Rural New South Wales. He's worked in medicine in many diverse roles for the last 15 years, from general practice to mental health, with a particular interest in eye health, service design, Aboriginal health, and access to high-quality services to the most disadvantaged. He has worked in delivery of health services to asylum seekers in detention centres and is currently um, focusing on equity of access to care to all Western New South Wales patients, which must be a huge job, Clayton. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Lucy. And um, yeah, it is it is a big job. Yeah. Now, yeah. I know that I've just given a small summary of both of your jobs, but you're both here today as human beings. Uh, you, you do the job that you do, but actually today you're you're representing doctors and what doctors feel and uh, what doctors have to cope with in their day-to-day so um it is really lovely to see the two people sitting in front of me below these two um amazing uh, uh bits of information that i read about about all you do can i start with uh you maxine sure do you feel there's adequate understanding of the pressures doctors face to have all the answers? Mm. Uh, it's a leading question. I would have to say no <laughs> to that. Um, doctors themselves are not really encouraged to take awareness to their own health and well-being, and it's something that's ingrained ever since, even before medical school, but definitely affirmed in medical school. In medical school, there may be a few lectures that pay lip service essentially to work-life balance and they'll bring someone in and say, well, you know, you need to get work-life balance, get yourself in order, but then that's pretty much it. There's no ongoing support. The way doctors are trained actually doesn't support them in any way to develop health and well-being. The focus on the training is getting the marks, getting the grades, fitting in, not falling behind, and just getting on with it. And I've actually, I know of medical students who are being sexually harassed but are afraid to report it because it's going to impact on their career. I know of a medical student who was in a PBL, a problem-based learning session, which reminded her of the recent bereavement, uh, reminded her of her grandmother. She said it shed a few subtle tears. She was ripped out of the PBL session and told to get it together and that she was being unprofessional and she could never, ever repeat that behaviour again. So no support given whatsoever to her health and well-being. And these are examples that typify what happens in the training of doctors and that people might be told, how are you doing? But then the focus goes immediately. Have you done this? Have you done X, Y, and Z? How are your grades? How are you putting on? And the medical students that I know are just inordinately stressed out. And, you know, studies show that even medical students, almost up to 60% of them are actually burnt out. And these are just students. And it only gets worse as uh, the training goes on. Um, there's a stigma for doctors with mental illness. It's still there. People are afraid to access um, help for their health and well-being. Um, there's um, lack of support for awareness of your health and well-being. Being tired is the norm to the extent that we don't even recognise that it's actually an issue to be tired all the time. You just take six cups of coffee and to the extent that the Queensland government actually when they made their recommendations for improving the services of you know, the health of the medical profession in hospitals to help them with the job, the recommendation was to drink eight cups of coffee a day. 
you know, that's how you were going to solve the solution with the issues that the doctors were facing in the hospitals. So it's still an issue that um, we're facing where there's a reluctance in the medical profession to actually acknowledge that there are issues and less than 40% of doctors actually have their own GP, for example. And even then, if they do, it'll be someone they know, someone they're related to, even though you're not supposed to, because it's not valued as being something that's important. It's not valued getting counselling to support you with your day-to-day job. It's not valued getting support with the emotional stresses and strains of the job. There is nothing in the training that prepares you to adequately deal with or be prepared for the emotional stresses and strains of the job. You're expected to just get on with it. If a patient dies, you just have to just deal with it, move on to the next thing. And there's a stigmatisation that if you need counselling, then there's something wrong with you, there's something defective with you. Doctors are expected to be tough. They're expected to toughen up. You learn that only the tough survive. And the question that I have is why is the focus on survival and not vitality in the medical profession? Why are we as healthcare professionals not vital? Why are we not energized? Why are we not full of health and well-being? And the statistics are showing that our mental health on a number of levels is actually worse than that of the general population. We have high rates of anxiety, at least the equal the rates of depression and some studies suggest higher rates of depression. We have higher rates of suicide at least two times, but some studies report up to 5.7 times higher. Women doctors are at higher risk of suicide than male doctors. We have higher rates of suicidal ideation than the general population. 25% of doctors have thought about killing themselves at some stage. 10%, according to statistics in the Beyond Blue survey, have thought about killing themselves in the last year. And these figures are extraordinarily staggering. We have a higher rate of high psychological distress in the general population. We have um, rates of drug and alcohol addiction that are rampant. Um, We have marital breakdown like everyone else. And some studies suggest that the quality of our personal relationships is not that good. Um, we, we, We struggle with that. There are huge issues in our profession and as yet... They haven't been addressed and our rates of burnout are 40 to 55% of the profession globally. That's an epidemic, like that's actually a crisis. And burnout itself is associated with high rates of cardiovascular disease, anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, type 2 diabetes and musculoskeletal problems. So it's not just an issue of being tired. These issues are massive and they're occurring as a result of the training and as yet there is no great awareness to these issues. It's great to see conversations recently starting to happen about uh, suiciding doctors and the New South Wales government is now doing an inquiry into why we're getting so many suicides in the young doctors, but we're dealing with ingrained issues here and doing short-term inquiries. I don't feel are going to get to the root cause of things. We as a profession need to have open discussions about what is actually going on. We need to be aware of what's going on. We need to study these things and we need to take a true care for ourselves so that we can actually truly understand what's going on and ask for and develop the support for our own profession in addition to patients. Clayton, what what are your thoughts? Oh, look, it's it's refreshing to hear another doctor speak like this. I think um, (laughs) when I've been talking about this, I feel like I've been alone lone wolf in the forest or a lone mm. voice in the forest for a long time and and I do think as a medical community we don't talk honestly about it. Mm, we don't. I think we're, you know, I mean doctors as a group are, are very high achievers um, and, and the Thomas Satz used to say, um, you know, looking at the social aspects of mental illness and it applies to the general population as well. Sometimes mental illness and suicidal ideation is, um, you know, is a normal response to an abnormal environment 
and for doctors, you know, from even from a very fairly young age, um, we become high achievers. You know, so we, we, you know, most of the doctors have, have always been at the top of their grade. Many yeah. come from some of the most exclusive schools in Sydney. So I'm talking about Sydney doctors. Yeah. And so you get to, if you look at the environment that these human beings, and we're all human beings, find ourselves, we get the, the creme de la creme of every school and put them in a room together and make them compete, you know, and, yeah. and offer very little in, in the way of support. Mm. Um, so when, yeah, when you were the, you know, you were, you're always the, the best student we're all ducks of our schools, um, we, you know, and um, and it becomes very competitive. And I remember in the first year of uni, it was called the culling year. Wow. Where basically, you know, and I remember doing a six-hour exam, and not just a six-hour exam, but going from from room to room across campus. So you, it was quite disorientating. We were told that was to prepare us to see who can make it in, in medicine. So you've come from being ducks of your school, you're in a group with all all high achievers or overachievers. Many of the doctors are overachievers, mm. concert pianists, etc. And then you go through med school, you finally get through and you finish, and then you dropped into your intern year. Mm. Uh, the intern year is, I mean, when I did my intern year, you know, it wasn't unusual to do, you know, 60, you know, 60 70 hours on call straight or do, do the weekend. Wow. You know, working, making, you know, and that's and that wasn't uncommon back mm. then. It's changed now, but again, you dropped into this environment again with very high achievers, and now you're working towards specialist recognition, and then it takes it's in a whole new ball game. So you've got the creme de la creme, creme de la creme, creme de la creme, and before you know it, you know you've, you're in a situation where, for some doctors, it's almost impossible to bear. And I think, mm. um, and I and I do agree with everything that, that Maxine has said. I think. It's a, a lot of, un, I'll say it, there's a lot of unrecognised what we call psychopathology mm. in medicine. I think you almost have to have, have to be a little bit different to make it. I think, you know, there's, there's um, you know, and, and I think there is, so, it, it, we haven't had an open discussion. I don't think we look after one another as doctors. I think doctors have taken on a lot more roles than we did 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, I always say that we've taken on the roles that the priests have left behind you know, mm. and that we've taken on the, the moralising, don't mm-hmm. smoke, don't drink, exercise. We've taken on a whole new role. And I think a lot of that's not, not, not recognised. I don't know that doctors should do that. But this is also on the background of what I think is an abnormal environment the general population finds themselves in yeah. as well. I don't yeah. think it, this is unique to doctors. This is a human problem. And I think, um, you know, to live in the... I mean, if, if we've got escalated... If we've got increasing rates of depression then what's the cause? You know, yeah. we talk about the treatment. My question is, what's the why? Yeah, we've got to look upstream and go, why are people feeling yeah. what they're feeling? Yeah, and, and I think my, my view is, I, you know, and, I, and uh, I mean, I use this word and people usually shudder, but I think it, part of it's spirit. Yeah. I think that we've been despirited. And I, if you look at some of the old texts, um, you know, Fisher's psycho, uh, psychopathology, there's a few texts, ancient, when I say ancient, 100, 150 years old, mm. old, text on um, psychiatry, the spirit was mentioned. And I, my view is that, my personal view, not as a doctor, is that um, depression is a type of being despirited. I think that you've lost that, that vitality, that connectedness, that, that you know, that um, you know, energised, you know, as, as Maxine said, you don't feel energised anymore. Mm. Now, we can talk about whether that results in chemical changes. That's fine. But I think what is the original thing that started it? It wasn't the serotonin, it wasn't the dopamine. Mm. That's a consequence. So what I'm saying, I guess, is that doctors, in a way, are, are a microcosm of what is a macrocosm of problems. 
um, in, in mental health. And um, you've been made to look at things in a small way without actually appreciating the bigger picture. Oh, so you yeah. actually have to look at it in a in a um, psychological, a spiritual, a, a, a soulful way about connection. I mean, we know that um, we know that our our primary goal as humans is social connectedness. We Correct. we know that we're all from one. Yeah. Um, from one source, yeah. but actually it's the separation of that that causes a lot of harm yeah. and the isolation from that. Yeah. So it's actually working out, um, it's actually putting some value on that connection back to our oneness. Yeah, and I, and I think that, absolutely, I think doctors are in a great position to appreciate that, that oneness. I think, reflecting on my times as a junior doctor, I mean, they were some tough times. You know, I think that, you know, you, you've come out of university high school to university and then suddenly you're dealing with death mm-hmm. you're dealing with 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 families who are who are very there's the emotional load is extraordinary mm. the cognitive load of making decisions on a constant basis is extraordinary yeah. and i think back to my time working in the emergency department and having to certify um you know patients you know dead on arrival mm-hmm. you know that 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 is hard yeah and um and i think maxine's spot on i think it gets worse as you progress i think it um, the feelings can become more isolating. Do you, you think know? that's because people are told to just suck it up and that's your job? You're actually going to see death a lot, so you actually have to turn off those feelings. You're not allowed to feel anymore. You just have to get on and do it? Well, I actually feel that um, there's a long tradition in medicine of not seeing doctors as people and doctors don't see themselves as people equal to everyone else. So the process of training in medicine is dehumanising. Uh, it's disconnecting. It disconnects you from who you are. It disconnects you from, and thus it disconnects you from other people and mm. community and humanity in general. Yeah. Which is ironic, given that medicine and the sort of people that do it are those naturally caring, who care for people, yeah. who want to go in there to make a difference. But the whole process is it's demeaning, dehumanising, and demoralising. And you know, not surprisingly, you get burnt out. You know, at the end of it. And. The sort of people that teach medicine are often those people who they they don't know any different. They were trained in a similar way. And there's a culture of medicine that basically says, well, this is the way I did it, so you have to suck it up. You know, and I did these five-day shifts, so, you know, all these young graduates these days, they're getting it easy and so on. Yeah. So there's a huge jealousy in there within the profession as well towards bringing in more compassion and understanding towards younger doctors. And it seemed to be weak that if you have human needs, human feelings you know it's it's seen as a sign of weakness and a sign of failure that you're not going to be able to hack it you can't do the job and I'd like to return a little bit more to something that Clayton was touching on in the sense that uh, we talk about resilience training for doctors these days you know you have to be tough you have to toughen up and that's the emphasis like and being tough in, in medicine is not showing you feelings it's pretending you're not affected by things we all know that if you bury your feelings and emotions, it comes out later as some kind of psychopathology and PTSD is a classic example of that. You know, people put up with highly traumatic situations for so long and they're coping, 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 and then there's a breaking point. Just like the same way you can load a camel up only so far with straw and it's a tough camel and it's standing there and then one day you add that extra straw and then the camel breaks, it's over. And that's the way it is with human beings. If we place the emphasis on coping, and not understanding and not being aware of what we're feeling, it makes sense that you're going to have people that are breaking down. And furthermore, in medicine, there's no culture of support for being a human being or having humanity and having feelings. And this culture is actually breeding problems. 
I actually see this culture as breeding the issues that we have and it's ending up destroying the people who are naturally caring, who are there, who can actually make a true difference. Um, so I feel that the culture of medicine is something that we need to look at and that culture of medicine at the moment is very much as is being increasingly revealed in the media as being that of bullying, intimidation, harassment, condemnation, judgment. If you make a mistake, it's the end of the world. It's very human to make an error and to make an error is not negligence. And if we are to support people and see them as human beings, we can better support their development. And in developing someone's care and compassion for themselves, it can only deepen in the care and compassion that they can actually provide another person. So I'd actually like to see us have a focus more on developing and nurturing people within medicine and the healthcare professions, rather than criticizing and condemning them for actually having humanity. We need to sleep. We need to eat well, we need to drink well, we need to have loving relationships. We need to look after people. This is a foundational thing in healthcare. I'm sitting smiling here going, uh, yeah, of course. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, right. that's all you tell us to do. Correct. Are you not doing that yourself? No, no, it's not happening. Holy moly. moly. No, really not happening. <laughs> we're, we're, our doctors are really poor at taking their own advice. Oh, that drives me bonkers. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But actually, it's a, I say it drives me bonkers. They're not encouraged to take care of themselves. They're not encouraged no. to have that well, value. Yeah, I, 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 look, I think Maxine's spot on. I think that... Um, I think that the only thing that I would add is that we used to have a very good um, appre apprenticeship model yeah. in medicine where we'd have the mentor-protege model, mm. where it was more... Now we have a clinical supervision model to a large extent, and, and I think we've, we've missed that. When I, when I, I mean, it sounds like 50 years ago, but it wasn't that long ago. I did my training in, in the late 90s, so it's not that long ago, and I, and I was very fortunate to have three or four very senior doctors who mentored me. Mm. So didn't you know they they would um, it wasn't just about you know which medication to give which patient I can get that from the textbook I can get that from my university training I can get that from a lot of areas it was about um, in the meaning of medicine so okay. we actually I was fortunate and I don't know if my, a lot of my colleagues have had this chance to have doctors like you know Dr Russell Clark at um, St Vincent's and Dr Stephen Talens you know these these really these doctors that made me think more broadly I mm. had a um, I, I relate a story in psychiatry that's interesting, but the um, I had a, a, a doctor, Dr. Vaughan Turnbull, um, who, when I first started working in psychiatry, he um, he handed out the the book called the Malleus Maleficarum, which is an ancient book. Um, it was used to describe what a witch would be back in the times of the Inquisition, and he gave me that book, and I never understood why, and I took it home to read it, and I thought this is just some. Oh, you know, ancient focus, text about yeah. yeah well it's about how to identify but what it was doing it was it was identifying variation in behavior yeah right which is very interesting now why did he show me that he showed me that because if you look in modern psychiatry many of our diagnoses are statistical so so i guess it started to make me think that maybe modern medicine doesn't have always have the right approach mm. and so i was fortunate what I, the reason i'm saying that is it protected me in a way um, because I started to look at things much more broadly, mm. you know, to see that, you know, say medicine doesn't have the right approach all the time. And I think some doctors feel conflicted. I think mm -hmm. sometimes they they see um, treatments being given that, that don't always work. Mm. You know, they, we, uh, the thing that, that, that disillusioned me was chronic disease. I know, Maxine, that's your, you know, with rheumatology, that's your area of expertise. I think that spending years in medicine and, and seeing chronic disease rates increase, seeing, you know, depression rates increase yeah. is um, demoralising. 
Yeah. You are listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. Welcome back. This morning, you are listening to a show that's celebrating World Health Day, which was Friday. Um, world Health Day is every single day in um, in my world. Uh, and we're asking the question, who cares for our carers? Now, my guests in the studio are Dr. Maxime Schranker and Dr. Clayton Spencer. Welcome, both of you. And my question, the question that we have touched on to start off with, we really unraveled an awful lot in the first segment and what became clear is that a lot of the things that doctors experience as normal and as a, and actually are quite abusive in the way they're trained and the way they are asked to manage their day-to-day is uh, prevalent across so many other organizations. So, for example, the emergency services, um, uh, they feel and they see atrocious things and they're, they're expected to just get up, get over it, get on with it, go from one job to the next very quickly. Now, um, there is something missing. There is something very uh, wrong with that. So how do doctors cope? What happens to them? Clayton, you were mentioning when we were chatting in the break, there's a particular way of coping that you feel you're seeing in your day-to-day. Absolutely. Look, I mean... You're quite right. I think there are so many professions where the burnout rates are extraordinary. I think you mentioned I mean, police, for instance. I mean, some of the challenges with police face is not dissimilar to what doctors face. Um, you know, paramedics. So there are many examples of nurses as well. Let's not forget yeah, the other and and nurses, nurses and allied health line. as well. Absolutely. I mean, you see some some uh, some of the, the the most fantastic, amazing human beings I've seen have been health staff yeah. in general. And, and I think. Um, I think when humans are faced with trauma on a daily basis, everyone reacts differently. I think there is, you know, there's different official terms like acute stress reaction, post-traumatic stress disorder. But I think um, you, you de- you're describing a group of people who are visible. You can see that they're visibly distressed. But there's a lot of people who have invisible distress, I, I guess I call it. And for doctors, I do believe that when faced with years and years of difficult decisions and, um, you know, really high high emotional load, I think sometimes doctors, maybe parts, part of a doctor dies, I think. You know, and, I, and it's not about, you know, I, I mean, that's just my, my view. I think you get to a point, this burnout that we describe, I see that as part of the self-dying, part of, you know, whether it's the part that can show compassion not just for their patient, but compassion for themselves. I think it, I think it starts with not being able to show compassion for oneself. And That's do, so sad. It, it is very sad. I, I, you know, it is very sad. It's heartbreaking. And I think I mean, that's not the case for all doctors, of course. I mean, many doctors feel energised by the work and, and take a different focus. Mm. But for some doctors, I do think, and I think Maxine would agree, there are some doctors out, out there that have just um, shut down part of themselves. And, yeah. You know, and then we don't get... And then you start to get that very narrow focus and... and um, and, and having said that, I, I've I've worked with doctors previously um, who have been like that. There it is possible to re-energize, allow yeah. help them reconnect. Yeah, um, it's it's certainly possible. Um, so we're yeah. talking about a disconnection, and could we could we put the word? Could we suggest that that is it's a disconnection from your heart, which is the space where you know that you're connected to all people. So when someone suffers, you suffer. Yeah. Um, in the sense that you feel it, it's, it's, and you can either absorb it or you can observe it, but actually yeah. when you see it constantly, there is a 
and and no one supports you in that there is a shutting down what do you well, think lucy in that um what I've observed is that throughout school, even trying to get into medical school and then a medical school, everything around you enforces you to shut down to your sensitivity of who you really are and what you feel. Mm. Like if we look at ourselves as kids, we're all very loving. Like if you look, little kids are very loving, they're very expressive, they're naturally incredibly caring. And I feel through my observation of humanity, this is the essence of who we are, is to be loving, it's to be caring and it's yeah, to be sensitive. Absolutely. And what I feel happens is that through the education process and then throughout medical school, the focus becomes on getting marks. And it's just on getting marks. You know, it's about that and then defining yourself by a role or getting a particular job. And, you know, you have to shut down a lot of your sensitivity to narrow yourself in order to drive yourself and the current systems that we have to get the marks that, you know, the selection process says that you need to have, which is what they base the selection on. So people in the process of even trying to get into medicine so that let's say people have a true impulse when we're kids often many of us do we're very truly impulsed as to where we are to be and I remember at the age of four or five being incredibly clear that I'm, I'm clearly going to be a doctor like you know I I thought about it and you know I thought should I be a lawyer like little things no I was very very clear that that is actually what I was going to do and so many people that I know had a similar feeling. It wasn't an academic decision made necessarily on the basis of the fact that you're smart and you're getting good marks. It came from an impulse of a true care and wanting to actually truly care and uh, look after people. And actually it came from a love of people. Mm. But that gets shut down. And then in medical school, again, it gets further shut down because it's all about you being a medical student, you are going to be a doctor and connection with your humanity is that actually put to the side. And I don't think it's, it's not done deliberately by the people who are educating at all. It's just, it's the way the systems are at the moment. It's about the systems, it's about the process and it's not about who we are as people. So you learn to shut down part of yourself in order to conform and that's reinforced by everyone around you does the same thing. So you, there's no focus for you to process your feelings about things, to process your sensitivity. Um, you're taught to be very professional uh, and there are lots of boundaries around that because people are very afraid of bad things happening if you let yourself out and express your true care, you know. What you're might on. happen? I don't know. <laughs> what might happen if we express, you know, how much we love people and how much we care about people? So yeah. we learn to be very confined. And then when you're in a system which um, confronts you with enormous human suffering let's face it like in medicine we deal with people at their worst on a bigger scale there are yeah. lots of people who deal with trauma in their lives but yeah. um, in medicine that's the focus of our job day to day to day to day yeah. patient after patient after yeah. patient there's enormous suffering there's enormous emotional suffering there's yeah. enormous financial suffering enormous physical suffering and we're on the coal face of that all with a very limited toolbox but we're taught that our toolbox should be able to fix everyone so you go into it thinking, oh, I'm going to be able to fix everyone because you want to, because you care so much, you just want to fix everyone. Yeah. It's not possible, but that's what you want to do. And the ingrained training is that, yeah, you're going to be able to do that. You can fix everyone. And so you're, you're confronted with people in their 80s with, you know, 10, 12 different comorbidities, you know, having amputations and diabetes and hypertension, you know, psychosocial abuses, had an abusive childhood, financial difficulties, and you have no toolbox to mm. deal with any of that. Mm. Um, and I think that the way doctors have done it in the past is like, I'm going to narrow myself down and I'm going to shut myself down and focus on this bit 
that I can deal with with my toolbox, which can measure things. And so there's a narrowing and a reductionism that comes in. And so part of that is the learning, well, I just, you know, I don't have time to deal with my feelings about things. I have to focus on this. And I think that's part of an issue as well. But then there's a burying because as sensitive, caring people, we feel absolutely everything and we're affected by absolutely everything. Uh, Absolutely. And if you shut down who you are and your love, you can no longer truly care for yourself. You can't love yourself and you're very limited. You can't actually provide a true care for that person. It starts to become quite functional. And we're not designed as human beings to be functional. We're here to be caring. We're here to be loving. Function is what Clayton was referring to as a part of them dying. Like Mm. if life becomes just expressing a professional role or how you're trained to be or only information you're allowed to be and you can't express the essence of who you are in truth, then in sort that is actually a death. And I think that is what we're seeing in the medical profession with the environment and the abuses that reinforce that and then also in other professions and in society as well as Clayton was alluding to. When you go back to the origins of medicine, is that what, I mean, were we always taught to make it about what you learn or was it more body centric or what? Yeah. Do you mind if, I mean, I might just talk just going way back, I'm talking hundreds of thousands of years and then I think we want to talk about Paracelsus. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, I think that, no, I don't don't think it was. I think that, um, I think there was a time long before medicine, medicine's still a fairly young science compared to if you date back to the historical records and and i think you know the ancient shamans in tribal culture um the focus was on same as paracelsus the first step in healing was spiritual Mm. then it was herbal it went through a whole process until you got to leeches and i think often we're at (laughs) leeches first rather than than Mm. than the spirit and um so i think that the the old shamanistic cultures and they still exist in parts of australia I've, i've spent time in in remote parts with traditional Aboriginal healers. Mm-hmm. They exist in all cultures, including Celtic, Anglo-Saxon. You know, yep. we, all, we all trace back to these original healers within a community who would focus on, on, on their own health in particular. I'll just give you a, a quick example. I, we've, I was lucky to be able to bring some, some ancient healers to Bathurst Hospital um, about a month or so ago. First time outside of South Australia that they actually went to clinic. I got set them up in the medical centre at the hospital and they read clinics um, as traditional healers. So there was no, it was all spirit work based and they were, they were you know, they, they, they had trouble speaking English. They, they spoke um, Pinjara. Yeah. Um, so the, the clinical notes were interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the point of bringing this group in was to try and um, energise the, the local Wiradjuri people and, in, and look at healing and see that there was a lot of, this is a, a culture that exists in all of our ancestry in one way or another. Um, and I mean, it was, I think it really opened things up. I think that the, the, I spoke to the healers and they, before, and we, doctors don't do this, before the session, it's all spiritual work, um, they would actually have to cleanse. They'd go through a ritual themselves and afterwards they'd have to do it too because they picked up in their mind in the, the ancient way of thinking, they'd picked up on the disease spirits. Yeah. And if they didn't cleanse at the end of the evening, then the diseased spirits would affect how they could heal tomorrow. Now, that's an ancient way of physician heal thyself. Um, and I think the, the modern equivalent of that is, is um, self-reflection at the end of a day. And I, think, I don't think doctors have time to self-reflect. If you work in an, in an emergency department in Sydney today, I think you're thrown at so m- every single bad thing that's happened 
in that area that day will come across your door, mm-hmm. not just yours and nurses. And to be honest with you, I remember in my time in ED doing through multitasking with you know two or three different different emergencies, and and there's no time for that. What like the shamans used to do that self reflection, that self cleansing. I don't think, and and I think sometimes as a result, doctors like policemen like uh, paramedics, they start self-medicating, I think, just to shut things down um, until they can get back to work tomorrow. Now, throw on top of that the abnormal human experience of night shift, yeah. throw on top of that the abnormal human experience of 24 hours straight. These are all abnormal. That's what I'm saying. That Sometimes it's a normal reaction to an abnormal, abnormal environment. Mm. And the one thing that's... Sorry. Maxine. Yeah, I just wanted to add in there just what you're talking about, an abnormal environment. Um I just want to bring that, I've got something else I'd like to harken back to Mm. as well about the art of medicine. But one of the things about the abnormal environment, if you look at the culture of medicine, it is actually frankly abusive. You know, there is no respect for who you are, no care, no love. Um, You're expected to just suck things up and conditions that don't actually really exist and aren't endorsed in other workplaces. Yet we as doctors are actually respected expected to be resilient to these conditions to toughen up and there's a focus on resilience training whereas if someone were in a, an abusive relationship you would never ever tell that person to toughen no, up so true. to the abuse in that if there was bullying discrimination harassment you wouldn't yep. say suck it up it's part of the job you've got to survive it you know it's part of you know your lot in life etc you would say okay so you need to deal with the abuse in the relationship and then if the abuse in the relationship didn't end as caring people, you'd say, you know, I think, you know, you might be better off leaving that abusive relationship. But yet we don't actually have that culture in medicine at the moment. The focus is very much on self, you know, abrogation and just putting up with horrendous circumstances. And I just wanted to harken back to something that you were saying, Clayton, there about, you know, the ancient history of medicine. The term medicine actually comes from, or the word medicine comes from the term ars medicina, which actually means the art of healing. So medicine actually has its roots in healing, which has its roots in connection. So without connection to who you are in essence and in truth, without love and care, there can actually be no healing. And if we actually look at the body, the body heals itself. You know, there's a process that the body goes through in terms of healing. Um, And this is something that in medicine that we have lost connection with. We have lost connection with actually the importance of connection. And I recall in medicine, you know, Imhotep, being, you know, the first uh, well-known physician healer, he was also a priest. So for him, it was all about connection. It was connection within, with connection with people, connection with the universe. And that was very, very important. And that was the context and the framework with which healing was understood at that time. And as I understand it, that was actually the origins of true medicine that then, you know, had its steps throughout history. And then we come to the time of Hippocrates, where you actually started to get the um, systematization of medicine and the functionalization of medicine. And throughout various eras, there have been different theories that have come and gone, humors and vapors and X, Y, and Z. We're always getting shifting and changing paradigms. But I feel we always need to bring it back to people. And if we, if we lose connection with people, then we've actually lost connection with the essence of what the art is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I think on that, on that point, I, I agree entirely. I think that, um, you know, the first step towards healing is, is, is a focus on spirit. And by spirit, I mean that connection with human beings, that, mm. that, that oneness, Lucy, you spoke about before. And to have these conversations on a ward is challenging. I think that, you know, I, don't, I think it's refreshing to be able to have this, these discussions openly with another doctor. This is not something that's, that's discussed frequently 
at least not in you know it's um i think it's a show of weakness people think it's a show of weakness when we talk about this i find anyway yeah you're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. Uh, you are listening to Maxine, Dr. Maxine Shanker, Dr. Clayton Spencer talking about who cares for the carers. Now, we've looked at the um, problem and it's, it's enormous and diverse and complicated. We've looked at the training and how really doctors are not really supported to see what the issue is we've got pretty philosophical actually and looked at you know how how we can understand why we've got to where we've got to but i feel now we need to come to a place where we can start contemplating how we can be the change we want to see in our lives and in our world maxine spoke about um, people, you know, leaving an abusive relationship. And I would never ask anyone to stay in an abusive relationship. I would always, um, we always encourage people not to not to stay in that. However, if you see your relationship with your, your employer is abusive and you happen to be a doctor or a nurse or on the front line, what happens if all our medical professionals um, and we can put police and uh, emergency service workers in that in that bracket? What if they all decided to leave because it's an abusive relationship? We are absolutely done for. So somewhere along the way, we have to find supportive mechanisms and have these conversations so that those people who are in those professions can try and change it from the inside out. And clearly, I would say that's where Maxine and Clayton are working is how to bring this conversation to the fore, how to be brave enough to stay in the profession and how to look at their own work practices so that they can then speak from their own bodies and from their experience about what is supporting them to, to make a difference in how they're living their lives as an inspiration to others. We've talked about mentors and the importance of mentors in training. What if, you know, these two are just one of many that could potentially mentor the new generation of doctors and nurses and frontline workers coming in so that they don't get swept up in the norms of abuse and burnout? Maxine, what do you, what, how have you managed to change your practices so that you can work the hours that you work? And, you know, clearly from what we said that you did at the start, you clearly have a heavy workload and you clearly feel the passion and the connection to your community to not let them pretend that it's not happening. You clearly feel the advocacy role very strong in you, but how do you do that without burning out? Um, it's a great question. Um, I remember being in the UK a few years ago and I work full time five days a week in private practice consulting medicine. So I see patient after patient after patient. And in addition to that, I'm engaged in a huge number of pro projects um, outside of that. So my working days are extremely long. And I remember the, the, the doctor I was speaking to saying, oh my God, how how do you do that? Like, <laughs> I can barely make it through one clinic, you know, then I have to go and hide and I have to, you know, not not see patients for a while. And I remember 10 years ago, I, I was always had a great care and deep love for people. But I remember struggling to make it through like a, a clinic as well, which is half a day for those who don't know, just and feeling wiped out and, you know, tired at the end of it. Um, what I've learned is that I need to really look after myself and create a firm rhythm for myself based on a deep love and a deep care for myself. 
And But that also for me comes from a responsibility that I feel to everyone that I work with and then everyone um, who I see in, in my clinic. So when when I have that deep care for people, I want to be the everything that I am for that person to deliver them the best possible service and the best possible presence that they, they can ever receive. So I'm dedicated towards that. So from that, I um, make sure that I look after the way I eat, the way I sleep regularly, the way I dress myself, the way I conduct myself in my relationships, the way I deal with my own um, emotional issues. I've developed my sensitivity and I've deepened that. So that was something that I shut down from a very young age to go, I'm tough and I can do anything and I can mix it with the boys and do everything mm-hmm. like that. You know, don't tell me I can't do something, okay, all right, because I'm going to do it better than That's you. That's the biggest challenge, isn't it? I know, right? So that led me to starting out in surgery before I had to realise actually, you know, Maxine, you're more of a talker and a physician and, you know, <laughs> the wise understanding person, not so much the standing up at 2am in the morning operating on people type person. And gosh, that was biting when I had to accept that. Yeah. Um, and just accepting that and accepting who I am and my expression in medicine and life, like that's been real, like not trying to do something to prove something has been massive because there's that's big in medicine. To prove your worth, you have to take on the hardest thing possible. And if you're not like the top in that field or you haven't been the toughest or proven that you're the toughest, somehow you're not as worthwhile as other people or if you're earning less money, you're not as worthwhile as them. There's all these things to overcome. And for me, it's an ongoing process of self-development. I'm always deepening in... I'm always deepening in my awareness, um, deepening in my sensitivity, learning a lot. I learn so much from people every day and it's an absolute joy. I love what I learn from people. I love what I learn from my colleagues. I love working with them. I love the relationships I have with everyone in my professional life and everyone in my personal life and all of my patients. I really, really treasure the relationships and I'm always deepening in the relationships um, as well as deepening the learning. I'm always deepening in the relationships and learning to not take on other people's issues. I think as doctors, we we learn to absorb stuff, like be sympathetic, be empathetic and, you know, take it all on. Like I'm responsible for that person's issue, so I've got to carry them around and I've got to fix it. And one of the things that's really helped me is learning to step back and um, observe what's going on and go, okay, I understand it. And deepening and understanding for me has been really key and learning not to react Because one of the things we do when we're sensitive is we naturally react to suffering. We react to things. And in medicine, we're not trained how to deal with our reactions. So we we, we go around carrying them and then pretending we don't have them. Mm. But we do have them. And I find if I go, if I'm triggered by something, if I get upset by something or frustrated by something, I'm tired. And then I start absorbing things. And then within a day or so, I feel like, you know, a truck has hit me. And if I lose my rhythm of looking after my body, um, not eating well, or if I, if I don't deal with an issue in my personal life, I carry that around and that wears me down. And then I find that that then affects me, how I am in my working life. And then I'm more affected by the things that I'm seeing and less able to be a true support for the people that I see. So it comes down to all of those things. And the other thing that I've learned is to stand up for myself. It's to stand up to the uh, abuse that's there, to stand up and say, no, bullying is not okay, harassment is not okay, and that dysfunctional relationships are not okay, and it's not okay to be in environments of deep distress. So I've learned to bring my quality to every environment that I'm in and empower myself to know that I'm actually a human being. I'm, I'm not the role. I don't have to fit a particular picture. 
I can be who I am. So one of the biggest things is learning how to be who I am in every every aspect of life that I'm in. I wonder if in that, when people don't accept who they are, when they're looking for worth outside of themselves and they slowly dull themselves slightly, that's where you, if you don't spot it, if you do react to it, you go to those coping mechanisms and they, they're the self-medication that you were talking about earlier, Clayton, whether it's um, narcotics, whether it's um, over-the-counter drugs, whether it's alcohol, whether it's food, um, whether it's excessive exercise, you know, that you, you're self-medicating in whatever way you can. It might be drama because as we've discovered on this show, you can self-medicate by creating drama to distract yourself as well. Um but the, the, the key clearly is observing, not absorbing and having a routine that means that you know that you have a foundation to go into your day and a foundation to take yourself out of your day. Mm. That the way perhaps you set up your day when you get up in the morning by making your bed, you know you're coming back to that bed at the end of the night or, uh, you know, there's a consistency in that you were talking about self-reflection clayton yep. earlier and not having yeah. time yeah so yeah I, I think that well there's a couple of things i think the two things for me are self-reflection yeah and and finding work that energizes me right so that i jump out of bed finding your um, voice that's yeah. right and i think and so um with the self-reflection there's been so, some work done on this and i think there's this term the metaphorical white coat mm-hmm. that i talk to other doctors about that you know, when you're driving home from work, have, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a creative visualisation. So as you're coming back from work, you're crossing a bridge or a certain intersection, imagine taking your white coat off. Yeah. Or when you walk in the door, imagine taking your white coat off, putting on the hooks. So and when the kids come, because remember, many of us, you know, have fathers and mothers and yeah. sisters and brothers, and we have other commitments, um, yeah. like everyone else does, mortgages. Um, so you're coming into the door... Um, early on, you know, I, I felt like those, the ancient healers that I was carrying this, you know, for lack of a better word, spirits of the day. So mm-hmm. taking that white coat off was taking that dirty, for lack of a better word, coat off, seeing the kids. And then in the morning, I put the coat back on. And when I got the coat back on, my doctor for those eight hours, 10 hours. But other than that, I'm a, what I want to be, be a father, yeah. be anything else. So I think the self-reflection is important. I think the, 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 the benefit of a mentor is to be able to sit down with a senior colleague and saying, look, I had a tough time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you don't see doctors cry much, but doctors want to cry. Yeah. There's many times that doctors want to cry. I'm sure police want to cry too. Yeah. So you can imagine all those emotions that, you know, are still inside. And I think that having a mentor that you trust, I mean, sometimes you, you, you may want to cry. Sometimes you might want to talk about how hard it was to see that, that, that child die. Because the doctors are there with, yeah. until we actually start to close off part of ourselves, we're there with the patient. We can't help but be. We're humans too. We resonate with each other. So, so I think the the, the the other one was a GP by the name of Dr. Corrigan. I think it was around the 50s. He actually built a separate room with a, one of the bookcases that, that turned. Yeah. So the patients couldn't tell it was another room. But it's called Corrigan's Door. So after really hard clinics, he would go in there and just read a book on whatever. Just to, so he's not a doctor for that period. So we talk about every doctor having a Corrigan's door, every doctor having a GP, you know, a doctor who can share and understand what it's like. You know, I think sometimes you need a doctor to talk to. 
These are the relationships that Maxine was yeah. talking about, yeah. you know, making sure that you've, you're valuing your relationships wherever they are and actually yeah. uh, ensuring that they are there to support on a two-way basis. Oh, absolutely, and the GP benefits from that too because they're thinking, well, that was what I was... I went through that five years ago. Yeah. So I think there are things that can be put in place, self-reflection, peer support through mentorship, and I think the energising bit is the bit that did it for me. I think um, through my science work working through working... Um, with you know disadvantaged groups, I feel the energy. So I drive tremendous distances, sometimes thirty or forty thousand kilometres a year, mm-hmm. and I do that. And a lot of doctors don't do that. Um, and I do that because it means I can sit down with with someone who needs needs help. So I think everyone's got their own energising. For some, it's money. For some, it's you know social justice. For some, it's you know. Uh, equal opportunity, but everyone has an energy. It doesn't, and it, it just got to be careful. We got to make sure that it doesn't become destructive. That it's always mm. bringing people together. And, you uh, drive thirty to forty thousand miles a year or kilometres a year for connection with people. That's right. So I, I, I try and fly more now because I've also got a family that yeah. I'm trying to. Um, I'm also a full time dad for. So when I'm away from them, yeah, I'm away from the, the family. But um, yeah, it's it's it, that's all connection. That's all sitting down in in you know Cobar Burke. Yeah, it's learning not to compartmentalise our lives as well, isn't it? I, I love your uh, image of the hanging the coat up when you come home mm. and someone who is, uh, gosh, lives lives exactly what they taught, guided my husband to do that. He says, you know, when you come home from work, you've got to just hang some things up on the tree just mm. outside the door and you don't bring your work yep. into home. And then actually when you come back the next day, you might find there are less things to pick up that actually yep. because you've you've just left them to sit for a bit that actually you don't they're, they're smaller the next day you maybe they're just they've actually passed yeah, so it's a beautiful yeah a beautiful thought i mean that's i think that's taking what i said even further yeah but i think you're right i think let it let it settle overnight yeah um it's yeah. funny i i work as a youth worker and i remember going home one day um after a very full-on week with young people who are experiencing things that i just as a mother, I just looked and went, I want to save every single one of you. I want to, you know, I just wanted to fix yeah. everyone's problems, which was just so destructive for my personal health and well-being. And actually, well, the next time I saw them, which, you know, was only a few days later, I was going, okay, so how are you going? And they were like, yeah, yeah, fine, why? Mm. I was like, okay, hold on a second. Have I just carried your load for yeah. you and you just actually are not bothered by this at all? And I learned very quickly that... What is a what is something that's majorly abusive or destructive to me? Sometimes isn't the other person. They just want to share, yep. and in sharing, they they work it out for themselves. So the greatest question I can ask them is, "Do you need any support with that?" And be much more the observer rather than the savior, which I think in in our in that profession you are trying to do. I I agree with that, Lucine. Like that's huge and. I just want to touch on something that Clayton was um, alluding to in terms of the relationships and you touched on as well. Uh, I think having um, a a mentorship in in medicine is really vital, but more than that, I question why all our relationships with each other are not supportive and why all our relationships with each other are not caring. So we work as part of a group and we work as part of a team in medicine. So there are doctors in hospitals working together, groups of interns and residents, and then there are nurses and physios in allied health, and then we go into private, and then we have our, you know, the amazing team of receptionists we have and other colleagues that we have. And 
One of the things that I reflected on recently is that I spend more time in consultation with each patient than I do with all the doctors that I work with at the moment. And I reflected on that and I thought, wow, that's actually extraordinary. So the conversations we have are very brief. Um, we're all amazing people and they're incredible people that I work with and we have the deepest respect for each other. But I just clocked that we spend more time in consultation with patients than we do each person than we do on a daily basis, having conversations with each other. And there's very much this culture in medicine that you, you go into your silo, you do your thing, and then you seek your support outside. Yeah, rather than actually at the end of the day or how, or maybe it's once Just, a week, coming together and saying, so how are we going? What are we seeing? How do we, is there any support we need yeah. for each other? And I think it might be different for each person, but it, I, what, what I really clock is how our relationships are based on competition, as, as Clayton said earlier, in the sense that there's so much support that we can offer each other if we accept that we're here to work together and not compete with each other. And then within that, people can automatically, you know, necessarily seek out people. Just feeling like you can't talk to anyone about anything is a huge stress and contributes to a shutdown. Mm. So it's great to have a mentor and someone you can go to, but feeling that you're isolated in your workplace where you're in it on your own and you've got to survive somehow, that's contributing to enormous stresses and strains. And um, and I, I would really like to see that culture addressed in some way. And I feel it could be very simply and practically. So how do we do that? If, if we're a doctor listening to this, if I'm a doctor and I'm listening to this and I really haven't contemplated half of this, but actually I'm sitting there with my box of tissues because what you've just been saying has, has broken down that hardness in me and I've actually started listening and saying, okay, I can't, I can't actually go on like this. What are the steps? What are the practical first steps that they do? I mean, I think just to focus on the cultural issue, I think the first step there is what we're doing right now is for doctors to be brave enough, and bravery is the right word, yeah. to actually start to speak up. And to each other. To, to each other, but also, to also, I mean, it's important, I think, for the general public to know too that, yeah. that the, it's not just doctors, it's police, it's nursing, but I'm just Absolutely. saying that the doctor that comes in there. looking like they've got everything together may not have. You know, they may they have just often come from, don't. May, yeah. yeah, they. I mean, yeah. they given given a chance, it doesn't take much to really scratch the surface. Sometimes, yeah. they may have come from a, a you know, very hard death, a, you know, a, a lost patient. You know, there's thousands yeah. of things they can come. You know, same with you could be in the hospital, something major could happen, come down and see you in the um, in the private rooms. And you know, so don't assume that the doctors yeah. have got it together because so we're that, humans too. Absolutely. I guess that's, so, so I think th there's been a lot of, and I think doctors have done it to ourselves as well. Agreed. We take more and more on, and I came back to that originally. We've become we've become the the healers and almost the the priesthood and the nuns and that whole. We've taken yeah. on this moralising side too, and I think, um, you know, I don't think we're priests anymore. <laughs> so priestesses, really? sorry, priests and priestesses. No, no, I, I don't think we. I don't think we. We you are. You don't that. think we, you have that understanding of the don't. holistic nature? Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. No, I meant priest in the sense of moralising, not the sense of being able to give spiritual guidance. But in that moralising, don't smoke, don't drink, exercise, no sun, and, and it's important. I'm not saying none of that, that that's important, but I think I, what I've noticed is more and more is falling onto the lap of doctors mm. as as leaders, and, and I think we've almost encouraged that. I think it's, it's making things even more complex. But I think just simply starting with a discussion like we're doing now, um, and I think if anyone, if you know, if any doctor is out there and seriously distressed and in trouble, then I encourage them to contact um, you know the Medical Benevolent Society, Doctors Health Advisory Board, um, or to speak to a colleague. I think the first step is to speak to a trusted colleague, and sometimes that will be enough. But sometimes, um, you know, things have gotten so bad that doctors need help. 
And, um, and not to be afraid to ask for it because that is what you would say to your patient. Actually, you know, consider, be, you know, when someone says, are you okay? Yeah. No, if, if, a, if a patient comes in and says, hi, how are you? That automatic, I'm not really interested in your answer, but I'm just going to say, yeah. how are you? Just say, oh, gosh, it's been a hard morning, but hey, yeah. I'm here with you now. How can I support yeah, that's you? Right. What's, what's going so on? So I, th- I think that, uh, that but to make the point, I think it's very hard for doctors to put their hand up. Right. I think that there's there are impacts upon this is I, I really believe this. There are impacts upon their job, their career, yes. the view of their peers. I mean, if you want to become, you know, Australia's best vascular surgeon, you put your hand up and say, I'm I'm suffering here, you know, in your internal junior year. You lose your job. You lose your job. Or you'll at the very least you'll never get you'll never be yep. the best in Australia. So I think that when we say to doctors seek help and the other danger is that the, there's mandatory reporting of doctors to the medical board. Right. So if a doctor puts a hand up, talks to a colleague or even their GP, the GP under legislation is mandated to report that. Now, once they report that, that you process doesn't help their depression. No. You know, now they become, I thought I might be faulty, now it's been confirmed. And, and I think, so there's, there's lots of reasons that are built into the system, and I think formally, to prevent doctors from seeking help. And I, that's why I say, you know, that there are these, mecha- there are these uh, people that can be contacted, but I think having a good relationship with some trusted peers um, and I agree, Max. I think the culture needs to change. I think we're starting the conversation. But I think there's just one other point. I think with that doctor, if that doctor is not in acute stress but realises and agrees with what Maxine and I are saying, then have that conversation at their hospital. Yes. The more people having that conversation. Sorry, Maxine. I just wanted to add to that. So I feel that having conversations about the problems, the issues and keeping it open, like we need to talk openly about suicides. Yep. We need to, we actually need to know when someone does suicide. And I, I had an experience recently where um, a guy I went to medical school with killed himself in the residence quarters many, many years ago. And the response of the, the team that he was training with was, oh, we knew he was never going to make it. Yeah. Oh. That was their response. Yeah, yeah. We knew he was never going to make same. it. Yeah. No care, no compassion, no understanding. And um, this is what we see in medicine. When you hear someone killed themselves, I know it's in dentistry, well, oh, well you know, they obviously couldn't hack it. Hmm. Instead of appreciating, well, wh- you know, yes, there are personal factors, you know, hmm. in terms of the way people process life. But I feel we have a responsibility to nurture people that we put through the healthcare profession. If we don't live those principles of care with one another, then we can't really call ourselves a healthcare profession. We have an absolute responsibility to nurture one another. And we, each of us has a responsibility in that. And yes, you know, systems need changing and so forth. But as an empowerment, we each of us can take those steps to bring and live the qualities that we know are truly needed within the profession with one another. We can each of us take steps to care for ourselves, look after ourselves and look after ourselves and our colleagues and care for, care for them, be there as a support. It's one thing to say yes when you're distressed, make a call to Beyond Blue or Doctors Health Advisory Service and it's fantastic that these things are there. I think they are terrific. But where we need to be at is building a culture that nurtures and builds people to look after them to further grow and in that they'll be even further more able to deliver the most amazing healthcare mm-hmm. services. And when we start to nurture people and develop an overall culture that's not based on blame, shaming, condemnation and judgment, we'll start to have a culture where we won't actually need a beyond blue, yep. perhaps at one stage. But that would be ideal when yep. you don't need a helpline, I'm suicidal, I can't talk to anyone, can I please talk to you? We need those things at the moment. But wouldn't it be amazing if we could actually live in such a way 
and be such a support network as well as you know doing the job where people didn't even get to the phase where they were feeling suicidal that openly expressing and talking about what's going on what's going on at work how we're we feeling about things what's affecting us life and death was there bullying let's deal with that um how did you feel about the fact that that woman just suddenly died an unexpected death under the most traumatic circumstances how did you feel dealing with that two-year-old child in the car accident when they came in into emergency department mm-hmm. um and these things colleagues and in medicine we are in the best position to actually be able to support one another because we are the ones that live this every day and through our collective and shared wisdom we can offer a lot of understanding to one another should we choose to do that and developing those intimate relationships in the working environment are the most empowering thing that we could possibly do for ourselves and the most empowering thing that we could possibly do to support the health and well-being of the profession and then in terms of that the quality of healthcare that's actually being delivered because by the time that doctors are impaired they have health issues they're suicidal they're anxious they're distressed they're in high psychological distress we have to question what's the quality of connection and care that's able to be delivered despite the best intentions and care in the heart of that person to be there for that person you know fear begets ptsd and if we're living in a culture where everyone is afraid of being condemned or judged for making mistakes and in an absolute panic of being losing their job because they didn't say the right thing to the right person then what are we actually fostering are we fostering an environment where people can develop and learn or are we fostering an an environment of amnesia where people are permanently in shock and sleep deprivation we know those things affect memory anyway so paradoxically the environment we're having which is teaching people to toughen up is actually impairing their health and well-being and impairing the delivery of healthcare for patients as well yeah i agree and the only thing i'd add, add would be that that impaired clinician if given the right support or if we prevented that happening in the first place it can make tremendous differences and i agree in the ultimately it's patient care um ultimately it's patient it's about patient care and um no i couldn't agree more and instead what happens with someone who's impaired they're judged i remember being an intern <laughs> there was a a girl who um she had just worked 14 days straight and then she didn't come in on a weekend on sick leave <laughs> and um she was seen walking down in the mall with her husband and oh my god yeah. was she never <laughs> ever ever forgiven for this yep. never ever ever forgiven and she was so just i remember the conversations in the resident quarters people were outraged mm. someone had to come in and god forbid cover her but she was clearly not coping she was clearly exhausted clearly depressed mm-hmm. and nobody was there to support her yeah, everyone was there yeah. like you you you've got two legs you've got two arms yep. you're standing upright you're breathing through at least one yeah. nostril come to work you should come to work <laughs> like yeah, that's that's the culture <laughs> it's yeah. it's shocking and retrospectively going we should have all supported her and gone yeah. you know I completely understand 14 days straight are you okay like what's happening for mm. you like what we didn't know any better we were traumatized yeah. and then look back at the <laughs> rosters and go we hey had, we were struggling too that's you what know? everyone was trying to survive so they Correct. You, know, you just don't have anything left to give yeah i mean I, i we're not i don't think we're exaggerating in that i think in you know that's the experience for many doctors so no wonder they go to you know self medication and coping and and not report it and then it just becomes the norm or, or they shut down like i said and they become that group that's just shut down 20 years ago yeah. you know um and we and we lose a tremendous you know capable human being we yeah. do and just returning yeah. to the idea of the impaired clinician as she raised yeah. earlier like we shouldn't be allowing people to get to that point yeah 
like by the time someone's impaired and have a mandatory reporting, which is basically a penal sentence, <laughs> it's like you, you it's failed true. as a, you failed as a so human true. being. We, we're officially reporting you. You failed as a human being. You failed all of us. It's it's a stamp. There's it, a stamp. Totally wear it, a stamp. Wear, it, wear, it, wear it with pride. Yeah. Everywhere you go, you know. But w- there's no nurturing and no support or yeah. understanding of how did that person become yeah, isolated and why and how did X, Y, and Z happen? There's no nurturing to truly get them. It's called let's rehabilitate this person. But it's it's containment. It's just containing <laughs> it a problem. Says, it's just locks. It really is a horrible, it horrible is, experience right? for these doctors. Oh. And all of us go yeah. through, you know, yeah. periods of life. If we, if you talk to any doctor and everyone yeah. says, "Look, I'm fine. I'm never upset, or right. I, I never get stressed about things," they're lying. Yeah. Like it's human when you're exposed to the most extraordinary thing. It's very human to have a reaction, but then that's okay. You just deal with it and get support to help you process it. If you can't deal with it yourself, it's very human to do that. Yeah. We don't have that culture of humanity in medicine yet, unfortunately. And I actually feel that that is actually contributing to people becoming impaired to the point where they do become dependent on drugs and alcohol. They do seek the self-medication in various forms. And for some people, that's being a workaholic. You know, that's a form of self-medication as well that's a bit dysfunctional, but Mm. it's valued in medicine. There are certain coping strategies that are valued, and then there are certain coping strategies that are obviously stigmatised and not valued. And I think that they're are a lot of people that are very adept at covering up. Like Clayton was saying, you know, the doctor that seems to have it all together, that's smiling and is happy, may not be. You know, they may be putting on a good front, pretending that they're okay and knowing that they have to do that because if they actually expose the fact that Mm -hmm. they're struggling with something or they're not coping an aspect with the system, that they're going to be judged. And instead, if someone's struggling with the system, our first response is, the system's great, you're clearly wrong. Mm. Instead of going, okay, well, how can we be in, let's address that. Is there an issue with the system? You know, what's happening with you? Can we support you in some way? Instead of saying, we're entrenched in this system. If you don't fit in, you're out. Yeah. Wow. Unfortunately, we have come so close to the end of the show and I just feel that I've opened a can of worms because I just want to keep going. I think it's the most incredible conversation you two are having. I would like to say, um, should there be other doctors who feel the same way, please get in contact with both Clayton and Maxine. Um, Maybe there's something that you can all do as you collectively get together. Um, The contact details for both of them will be on uh, the Stay in the Loop with Lucy website by the end of the day. It seems to me that... um, if anybody wanted to have a talk in their hospital just to give the uh, space for another conversation to be had, that you two would be great. Yeah, I'd love to have mm-hmm. conversations yeah. with people about what's yeah. actually happening. Just right. bring it in. Put me, it me, me too. This is one of the things that energises me. Yeah. You know? um, well, I'm yeah. available to moderate that conversation. I reckon uh-huh. we need to... I, th- I just think it yeah. would be great. And if there are dynamic people yeah. and health advocates out there who... <clears throat> are in a position in their hospital to to recommend it as a topic of conversation a professional development conversation and hopefully some of the professionals in that hospital will be able to prioritize the time to come and listen because it seems to me that that is the only way it's going to change for your profession so thank you very much dr maxine thank you you very much dr clayton Thank you. Uh, you two have both been incredible. I have learned so much. I feel as if my picture of it all has been unpeeled. I feel slightly um, shocked, actually, by just how bad it is because I knew it was bad. But, you know, when you realise that someone's heart is shutting down mm. and that they're 
they're finding ways to cope as a bit of a robot to me, you know, um, and yet knowing that they have only gone into that profession because they have such a connection and a love of humanity and a love of people. That's hard. So I am... I know that we'll have you back, both back on. I shall wait and see what comes as to what show it is, but uh, I'll welcome you back on very soon. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Now, um, in the coming week, what have we got coming up? We have. Um, uh, I'm doing a body awareness um, program with young people, and it's a free program that's going to run out of Gordon Youth Centre, um, which is just by the library there. First, um, first one is on Tuesday from two till four, and we're going to have some um, some food in the afternoon. And then the follow up is the following Wednesday from ten till twelve. So that's going to be uh, run through Street Work and in conjunction with the Korean Guy Youth Service. So please make sure that you um, come along if you know anyone who is a young person who would like to take part in that. Then that's where you'll next see me. Um, I think really it comes back to choosing to be the change we want to see in the world and I'm always reminded of that expression, if not me, then who, and if not now, then when. Are we waiting for someone else to be that change for us or to bring that change into our lives or are we prepared to be the change and live the change we want to see in the world? And um, this morning has been has really highlighted the importance of not waiting for someone else to to own your own voice to be able to know that you get out of bed and you walk your talk and you you live what you want to see in the world which is a heap more love just being who we are um remember that regardless of what has or is happening in your life you are and you always will be amazing the key is to reconnect to that space and to build a relationship with your body so you can recognize when your body is trying to tell you something that's not quite right and then seek support with the appropriate support service, be that mental or physical health. Let's look for support in the community. It is there and in our friends and in our relationships, as we've had illustrated today. The podcast for today's show will be available through the Stay in the Loop with Lucy website and on SoundCloud. And if you want to get updates, remember to like the at Stay in the Loop with Lucy webpage or um, or the, the blog page. And links to all of those spaces are on the Triple H program page for Stay in the Loop with Lucy. Next week's show is going to look at palliative care. Now, the moment I mentioned I wanted to do a show on death and dying, it opened the door for some amazing guests to contact me. So I now don't have one show. I now have three shows uh, to do. Um, I've just got to find the space in the schedule for this year to do it, which uh, in the first half of this year, which will be uh, the first of which there will be next week. Um, how do we care for those at the end of our lives? I was struck by the fact that 80% of people want to die at home, yet only 10% do. And having spoken to a couple of palliative care doctors over or nurses over the this last week, I really noticed that um, there are actual practical reasons why it's sometimes not appropriate for that person to pass away at home and it's more supportive for them to, to die in hospital. So we're going to go into all of that next week. So I do hope you'll make an appointment to join me next Sunday morning, 8.30 till 10 on Triple H 100.1 FM. Till next week's show, remember to take a moment to look after you, to connect with the amazing people in our community. Be kind, be caring, be love, be all of you. You have been listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy.